0: up chapter two last time, and I want to start with two and get a run into three. End of two, there was a plot against the king's life that Mordecai uncovered, and he had Esther tell the king about the plot on his life, and she did it in the name of Mordecai couple of things. One, obviously, that lets you know that he is plugged into the goings-on in the court and is able to get wind of a uh, an assassination attempt. And the other thing is that he has made a decision that he is going to protect the king. When you have a rebellion going on, it becomes really important to pick which sides you're going to be on because if you take sides and you're on the wrong side, that isn't a real good career move. So anyway, Mordecai exposes the plot and saves the king. And so the next thing that we have is the appointment of Haman. It's important to understand that up until this time, Haman has not been mentioned. As we went through the big party where Queen Vashti bit the dust, and the selection of a queen, all sorts of The king's staff are named, by name. Haman is not in that list anywhere. So Haman has sort of come out of nowhere. My speculation, based on this book I've been reading by Hazoni, is that the reason for Haman's elevation is because of the assassination attempt. The king's behavior up till now has been that he really likes being popular throws big, lavish parties and, and has advisors all around him and, you know, basically in the middle of things. And the assassination attempt probably spooked him. What it gave him to understand is, A, that he's not universally loved, and B, there are dangers within his own court. So the elevation of Haman, who is not named prior to this, is the bringing in of an outsider, basically to cut the entire court out of the picture. Because one of the things that's going to happen when we get down to Esther's part in this is she's going to say, "Uh, I can't go in there unless he asks me. And so what Haman has done is he has been elevated to chief of staff, and nobody gets in to see the king except by going through him. Given the king's prior behavior, my speculation is that Haman's elevation as an unknown is precisely in reaction to that event. So now we're up to chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's word would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So you have the elevation of this chief of staff, and like happened with joseph in egypt when joseph was riding around in the second chariot everybody was called upon to bend the knee so what's happening with haman here is not unusual in a biblical sense what's interesting is that mordecai refuses to bow down and he does two things one he makes his defiance public because remember in the book of daniel When Daniel refused to bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar put up, he did not make his defiance public. He simply didn't change his routine. He didn't hide it, but he didn't sit at the gate and publicly disrespect the king, his idol, or his ministers. What Daniel did is just continued his habit, which was twice a day to go to pray, and he did so with his windows open which, by the way, is how people caught him because he explicitly did not change his routine, whereas Mordecai does it in the gate. So he's doing it up front of everybody, and he's doing it publicly, and he's also explaining the reasons why he's not doing it. And the reason he's not doing it is because he's a Jew. So the fact that Mordecai is sitting in the gates indicates that he is, in fact, part of Ahasuerus' court, and the fact that he is openly defying Haman in that place is the most public and obvious place you could do it, and the fact that he does it specifically as a Jew is significant. So the question then is, as a Jew, why does he not bow down to Haman? Haman is an Amalekite, and God does not like Amalekites, and hence Jews don't like Amalekites. I will suggest there's another reason. There isn't a problem with a Jew bowing to a head of state. If you were to go in and have an audience with a queen, a Jew would bow and have no problem with that whatsoever. So there isn't anything about being Jewish that prevents you from bowing to a head of state in a ceremonial way. The things that Jews are forbidden to bow to are idols. If This is simply a case of Mordecai being crosswise with Haman, the Agagite, and it's a personal thing. Him bringing his entire people into this without consulting them is arrogant, if nothing else. He regards Haman as, in essence, being an idol. Now, what's that mean? Look at Egypt. The pharaoh set himself up as a god. So one of the things that empires do is they tend to deify their leaders. Rome did it, for example. One of the things that Rome did is when a Caesar died, the senate deified that Caesar, and his son then took on the formal title of the son of God. Pharaoh was a god. Nebuchadnezzar set up an idol to himself. So the idea of emperors in this region setting themselves up as gods is not unusual. What Hozoni is suggesting is that the reason that Mordecai does not bow down is because by his actions, Ahasuerus has deified himself and has put a priest, if you will, between himself and his empire. And so Mordecai refuses to bow down. He would not be a hero. If this were simply, hey, they elevated this jerk, can't stand the guy, I'm not going to bow down to him. If he decides that as Mordecai, that's fine, but he's deciding it as a representative of the Jews, so he's dragging his entire people into it, and if it is for something as petty as they elevated a jackass, then he would not be a hero, and of course... The other thing that's going on in here is one of the things that the king has tried to do is cut out politics. Everybody has to go through Haman. I can deal with Haman. Haman I can trust to be ruthless, which means I can still be popular while he does the dirty work. The only people who can come before me is people that I want to come before me and people that can make me look good. So he has sort of tried to cut out all that political maneuvering what Mordecai is going to do is bring it back. And the first step in that is notice that when Mordecai refuses to bow down, finally somebody goes and tells Haman. Politics. Verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. As they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hazarus. One of the things we're going to see about the relationship between Haman and the king, Haman is very powerful. And the king very much enjoys jerking Haman around to make sure that Haman stays humble. And we'll see that as we go through. The king will just sort of jerk him out and have him do stuff. And that's by way of okay I've set up this really powerful guy I don't want him to get too powerful I want to make sure that I've always got my hand on him and can jerk him up short in that kind of an environment if Haman in a fit of pique takes out Mordecai Haman looks petty if on the other hand as happens in the story he says this guy Mordecai is really just the tip of the iceberg of a much bigger problem that you have in your empire, O king. You've got this people, and they don't follow your laws. And, oh, by the way, there's an example of one not following your laws because he's not bowing down. The idea here is Haman going after Mordecai in a fit of pique looks petty. Haman going after the entire Jewish people looks noble, at least between him and the king. Now, that's going to change later when Mordecai steps up his game and Haman realizes that he's losing badly he will then take a run at Mordecai correctly but at this stage he's he's not doing that. Verse 7 In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus they cast Pur, that is they cast lots, before Haman day after day and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. This is the twelfth year. We have got three time marks so far in this book. In the beginning was the big party where he brought everybody into town. All of his governors and all of his nobles brought him into town for a six-month party. That was in the third year of his reign. That was when Vashti bit the dust. Then in the seventh year of his reign is when Esther is chosen as queen. So now we're in the twelfth year of his reign. So it's now five years later. Verse 8. So then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. First thing to understand here is, this is not Haman's money. What Haman is planning to do is destroy the Jews and plunder their goods, and out of that, there is going to be a 10,000 talent of silver profit to the king. The idea here is, he is casting this as a service to the king. This is not some petty little spat that I'm having with some guy sitting in the gate that won't bow down to me. No, 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 this this is an affair of state, O king. You've got this whole people that is a problem. And, oh, by the way, I'll make it worth your while, because when we route them out, I will make sure that 10,000 talents of silver come in to your coffers. So not only they have odd laws, not only don't they follow your laws, O king, but, oh, by the way, we can make some money on this. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamidatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language, it was written in the name of king Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by courier to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the Citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is terrorism. By issuing this decree, you're going to throw fear into their hearts, and you're going to throw them into despair. Everybody dies. but Everybody also has families, and you know you build up a business, you build up a family, and so when you die after a full life, it's oh okay, I've left something here, something is going on, and you know I have my reward, but I've I've, I've made a mark. What Haman is doing here is he's basically going to extirpate the Jews, all of their stuff that they've worked for, all of their families, everything. So it is by way of trying to foster despair and when you foster despair one of the things that it does is lessen the will to resist so if you're going to wipe somebody out what you want to do is get them demoralized first this is not a surprise attack this is intended to demoralize as it says here the city of Susa was thrown into confusion and the idea is give up all hope and you enter here because We're not only going to get rid of you, but we're going to erase any trace that you ever existed. On to chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, There was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So what Mordecai is now doing is civil disobedience. He is not taking this lying down. What he's doing is he's making a great public show. And remember, he set up his defiance as a Jew. And so now that the decree has been issued, he is further defying and and making basically a public demonstration. And I'm suggesting that the idea here is when Haman is elevated, the king is separated from politics. And what Mordecai is trying to do is drag him back into the political arena. And he starts off by civil disobedience. So now down to verse 4. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hot Hotch, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Now, one of the things that's obviously going on, it's been going on for a long time, years, is Mordecai and Esther are communicating with each other. It is still not known that she's a Jew, but they are communicating back and forth. So Mordecai has been giving Esther advice years and so now when Mordecai comes up and lands at the gates of the city clothed in sackcloth and making a spectacle of himself Esther sort of freaks and she basically sends down some clothes and says you know cover up cousin you're embarrassing everybody Mordecai of course refuses so then she has to send an emissary down there to find out what the heck's going on so verse 6 and Hathok went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Notice what's going on. What he's doing is he is working on the reputation of Haman and the king. He's lamenting that his people are being destroyed. And oh, by the way, it's being done for filthy lucre. The king took a bribe to destroy our people, so what he's doing is he's undercutting the moral authority of both Haman and the king in this process. Verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and commanded her to go to the king and to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Notice, There's two things that happened here. One is he told him about the 10,000 talents of silver, and then two, he gave him a copy of the decree, which sort of implies that the decree doesn't say anything about 10,000 talents of silver. This is a deal between the king and Haman. What he does by disclosing the amount of the bribe, as well as disclosing the terms, indicates that the piece of paper that went out to the entire empire doesn't say anything about the bride. So then he tells Esther that she needs to get into the king and see if she can intercede for her people. Verse 9, And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now, we talked about this earlier. The speculation of the guy that wrote the book I'm doing, uh, Hazoni, is that this sealing the king off from visitors is a reaction to the assassination attempt. What he's done is he has set up a law that anybody that shows up in the throne room that I didn't ask for we're just gonna assume that he's an assassin. It's a security measure. Everybody has to go through the chief of staff and anybody that shows up in the throne room without an invitation is just sort of prima facie assumed to be an assassin unless the king recognizes him and says, come on in. Now, one of the things to understand is given the setup of the story, Yes, it is illegal for Esther to go into the king without being bidden. I quite frankly don't think that there's much risk there. And the reason for that is he has already gone through the process of getting rid of one queen and didn't really like that. And it took him four years to find another queen. He really doesn't want to go through that again. So if Esther shows up, the betting is pretty good that unless he's just got a gripping hangover or something, that he's not going to kill her. But having said that, there's still a risk. And what she's going to do is she's going to take action to mitigate that risk. Verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Notice that Esther is not publicly a Jew at this point. Yet the message that is going back through this guy Hatok, I don't know whether that lets the cat out of the bag or whether Hatak has known all along that she's a Jew. It's been a big deal up until this point that she has not acknowledged her people. And in fact, that's going to be a big deal in mousetrapping Haman in the next couple chapters. Because she's going to set Haman up and mousetrap him, and that mousetrapping would not work were it known to him that she is a Jew. But just as a passing thing, the message from Mordecai to her by this intermediary, whoever he is, does let the cat out of the bag if it is not known to him beforehand. Verse 15. Then Esther told him to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. A couple of things going on here. You've all been through Yom Kippur. And you know how hot and thirsty and draggy you are after 24 hours. 72 is a big deal. Not a big deal for food, but it's definitely a big deal for water. So one of the things that is going to happen is when Esther goes before the king, she is not going to look her perky best. And that's deliberate. Because when she comes in front of the king, not looking her perky best, he is going to see instantly that something is wrong. And so that's going to clue him that, oh, wait a minute. This is not just, I haven't seen her in a month and she misses my face. There's something serious going on here. The fasting for 72 hours without food and water will accomplish that. The second thing is, we have a couple of examples in scripture of secular empires trying to wipe out the Jews this is the first one and the second one is going to be under the Maccabees when the Seleucid Empire tries to wipe out the Jews and the reaction in those two cases is very different in the case of the Maccabees they go to war in the case of the Persian Empire they go to prayer The rabbis say that the difference between those two situations is in the case of the Seleucid Empire, the thing that is trying to destroy the Jews is aimed at everybody. And what Antiochus was doing was saying, all right, all of you people, let's get on the same religious page. So the Jews were simply swept up in an empire-wide decree where everybody was supposed to start worshiping Greek gods. It wasn't something that was aimed specifically at the Jews. It was simply that the Jews were caught up in a empire-wide deal. So it was not the case that God was in any way dissatisfied with the Jews, and so the Jews could fight with the understanding that God would be with them. In this case, the Jews are singled out as Jews. So there the assumption is we as Jews have done something that has gotten us crossways with God and what we need to do is get back straight with God before he will help us. The reaction here when the Persian king goes after the Jews specifically is diametrically opposite to the reaction of the Jews when the Seleucid empire goes after them just sort of incidentally because it's going after everybody. I am not going to start chapter 5 tonight please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com slash purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.